Queen Elizabeth don't know me, so how can she control me when I live street and she lives neat? Hello, you're listening to Ja, 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 Nee, Nee, Nee. My name is Ratna. My name is Arif. And we are recording this podcast in a different position than usual. I'm wearing my pajamas. Arif is wearing something else. Yeah, we're kind of laying on the ground in some uh, on some mattresses on the floor of a church, or I should say a monastery, which is a 13th century monastery turned into a contemporary art space, namely the Kunsthal Ghent. And I don't even know where to start yeah, with describing the space where we are. I mean, I think we entered it two days ago and we were both mesmerized by this huge blue curtain that uh, we are now surrounded by. And I have to say, it's also, it's evening. It feels a bit like night at the museum, or in this case, night at the church, because uh, everyone has left and just Arif and me are occupying this building at the moment uh, in the historic center of Ghent. And indeed, when we um, arrived here, and we walked in during daytime, it was... Um, yeah, we saw several artworks and installations that are part of um, what is called an endless exhibition. So each time new works enter the building, but they stay for quite a while and they might change into something else um, slowly instead of a regular, uh, more faster exhibition program. And the latest addition to this endless exhibition is um, a curtain that opened uh, or yeah, arrived here last week. And it's a work by Irish artist Jesse Jones. And it's a curtain, I think it's 30 meters long and 12 meters high. It's mainly blue, um, of t- yeah, semi-translucent, transparent material. It's uh, flowing and it um, features an image of a hand. Uh, or an arm, actually, with a hand that is stretched out. And it's not a random hand, but... The arm and the hand of Silvia Federici, whom you might know from her book Caliban and the Witch. Did you know about this book? Yeah, I've seen it around, but I haven't read it yet. Same here. I think a lot of our friends are reading it, and a lot of people are very excited about her. Yeah, it's from 2004, But I heard about it recently, like during the last year, when I think it was more read in several reading groups or people recommending it to each other. Yeah, I think what she really stands for is kind of the reimagining or reframing of the witch from a feminist standpoint, let's say. So this arm, like Sylvia Federici's arm, is basically surrounding us right now, right? Because the curtain can be drawn into the spiral and we are inside the spiral this is the second night we're at the Kunsthal. And last night we uh, slept over, yeah, in this, encircled by this curtain. And I was staring at it most of the evening. Um, yeah, because it's quite uh, an experience to be enveloped um, 
by this arm. Yeah, you have to imagine that this curtain kind of slowly is moved by whatever airflows are in this giant monastery. We kind of stopped talking yesterday. I think we were both lying on our mattresses and we were just staring up at this. Now we're doing it again. Yeah, we're looking up and we stopped talking again. <laughs> and at one point I fell asleep, but then in the middle of the night, around five, I woke up and then I was a bit scared. I don't know, I think I had a nightmare or something. But I think um, now I'm getting used to it and we're also protected by this arm somehow. I still feel like Marvin Gaye, by the way, which is <laughs> very rare because I never feel like Marvin Gaye. Um, but when I was laid down on this mattress with a microphone, I was reminded of uh, of this documentary, which is a documentary about his time in Oostende, this other Belgium city not too far away from here, because uh, he lived there for some years. And there's a wonderful documentary about him um, where you see him rehearsing for uh, a concert. And then he's just laying on this couch with a microphone in his hand, kind of in the position where I'm at now. And he sings um, this song, I Want You, but it's like super beautiful. And then all the comments on YouTube are like, wow, if he can sing like that, just laying down, like it's nothing, you know, but it sounds amazing. Um, but as soon as, <laughs> as we put the microphone here, I felt immediately, I had to think of Marvin Gaye. It's amazing that you're wearing this light blue sweater and we're surrounded by this deep blue transparent curtains. And then there's this strange fence here mm -hmm. in a kind of an in-between blue, which is a copy of the fence at Muscle Beach. Yeah, that's at Venice Beach. I've, I've been there actually once. What is it like? Um, it's a bit, because there's also this known part where people are skating. It's featured in quite some music videos, I think. And um, yeah, Muscle Beach itself or this part of Venice Beach is a lot of men in, uh, you know, they put some like bodybuilders kind of men with a lot of oil on their bodies and they're like training and working out and it feels a bit old also. I think that the equipment is not super up to date. It's a bit like... Um, it's like these public workout stations. Yeah, at the beach, yeah. Hmm. But it's a very famous one. So I think everyone there is super aware that... They're part of this and are being watched and are performing this uh, almost ritual that is there for a long time on this beach. Okay, we're getting a bit sidetracked here. But if you know our podcast a little bit, you may be waiting for our artist contribution, the voice message of this episode, which is by Stephen Warwick, who is a British artist residing in Berlin. He's a musician and a writer, and he also has a performance practice. You can read his writing in, for example, Texte zur Kunst or Art Forum. And you may also know him as Heatsick, his alter ego. He released an album on Pan Records a while ago. And under his name, Stephen Warwick, he just released his latest album also on Pan, titled Moi, M-O-I. And Stephen sent us a voice message. I'm very happy about that. We've been in contact for a while and his album dropped and a few days later he just out of the blue emailed me and he sent his voice message which is titled list of the kings and queens of the great britain willy willy harry steve harry dick john harry free one two three eds dicky two harry four five six then who 
Edward's 4-5, Dick the Bad, Harry's Twain, Ned Six the Lad, Mary, Bessie, James, you can, then Charlie, Charlie, James again. Will and Mary, Anna Gloria, George's four, Will four, Victoria, Edward seven, next and then, came George the fifth in 1910. Ed the eighth soon abdicated, then George sixth was coronated. After which, Elizabeth. And that's all, folks, until her death. That was Stephen Warwick. I think I met Stephen the first time when he came to play in Amsterdam at Trau, a club that now doesn't exist anymore. I don't know, were you there that night? I missed that night. But I knew it was quite a legendary night because, um, yeah, I think you or other people told me about it. Now, speaking about Trau... I was there quite often in the basement called The Verdieping. And that's also the place where I once screened this Marvin Gaye documentary. Oh, wow. But that's another story. But Stephen was playing in Trau. He was. And I always remember that night because he was doing a thing back then that was called Extended Play. And his writer was amazing because... So a writer, basically, you send ahead of your performance and you kind of ask for certain things, right? And he asked... Um, among other things, for lots of hula hoops, for yoga mats, and also for a lot of fortune cookies. So I went to buy this huge box of fortune cookies and we were handing them out while he was playing. And he was playing for three hours and he brought this MIDI keyboard, kind of a few keys missing. He basically played a loop, a slightly changing, ever-changing loop for an hour. And only after an hour he started singing also. And it was this crazy hypnotic experience people were like hula hooping in the back there was a video that he screened also somewhere behind the dj booth so people were moving around or were they dancing or was it more like a listening session no people were dancing and he was on after fatima al-kadiri ah, yeah. who played like an intense set for an hour and then the night kind of faded into extended play I wish uh, we would have an extended play in this monastery right now. Maybe later, because we will be here for a while, actually, with Yaya and Ene, um, because we arrived this weekend. But for the coming three months, we're part of the development program at Kunsthal Gent, so we might do some more radio broadcast here, stay over in different formations, um, but yeah. I think we're moving most of our equipment to Belgium for the coming months. So there's more coming up somehow. The curtain is still moving. The curtain is still moving, yes. It's funny because we're also speaking different than usual. We're speaking like someone is watching us, which is not true because no one is watching us. It's just the curtain that is around us. Um, but it's, um, and it's also the church. Because I notice when people come into a church, also at the old church in Amsterdam where we um, work or where we are sometimes, as soon as you enter, people start to whisper. And I have that here as well a little bit. Yeah, it's also that if we speak loudly, there's this crazy echo. <laughs> hey, But hey, we have another part in this podcast, another yeah. segment that we should announce. Should I announce it? 
Yes, I think so. So we started a collaboration with uh, Sonic Acts back in Amsterdam. It's a um, festival slash conference slash performance and concert series. It starts on the 21st of February, takes three days. And so we started a series, a podcast series with them. In the first episode, Ivan Cheng spoke to Sadaf. Sadaf is an artist from New York who will play or perform at Sonic Acts. Yeah, Ivan talked to her over Skype. I think I was never really a fan of Skype podcasts, but I feel this one is really working. And also the second one in the series is a Skype conversation between Lukas Likauchan and Leonardo Del Noche. And also that one's working. So I think my faith in, I don't know, voice over IP podcasting is getting there. I think sometimes through Skype you get a certain intimacy that sometimes works better even than meeting someone in person in a very strange way because you are in your own often when you Skype with someone people are in their own environment in their own house or studio or whatever and then you get sometimes a different vibe compared to meeting at the place with someone for an interview yeah well Ivan and Sadaf Skyped and Ivan also edited this conversation in the recording so you will hear music by Sadaf and You'll hear a conversation between them, and we hope you'll enjoy it. When I download music, I listen, I listen to it very, very fast, and I know immediately if I can use it or if I cannot use it. And it is really material. It's not about the artist. It's not about where it comes from. It's just not how I, how I find it, the quality, nothing. It's, it's really material. It's like clay, and it really takes shape because of what I put next to it, you know, by itself, it's kind of maybe irrelevant. Sometimes not. Sometimes it's really like songs that I love and I really want to include, but it's the whole that matters. And it's the juxtaposition or the relationality of one thing next to another that makes it into a whole, um, that makes it into, you know, a mix or whatever. But even DJ sets, I, I really look at it as a whole and not about like a selection of music or about, you know, portraying good taste or um, saying, you know, being an influencer in a sense or, or things. I, 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 there is a sense of wanting to, um, wanting to provoke, I guess, sometimes. And, and also I, I really, I'm kind of bored by great transitions and smooth transitions and genre sets where you don't notice the shifts and you don't, you know, things that are very, very well done really kind of piss me off sometimes because I just don't care. There's too much of it. It's just, there's too much that's really <laughs> thoughtful and, and, uh, researched and, and anyways, and that's really great. And the people that are really great at that are, that's their craft and they've honed it and it's amazing. But I just see no point or no interest in for me to want to emulate something like that to be a good DJ. But yeah, transitions are improvised, are very intuitive and have to do with, I mean, live, you can kind of tell when I'm, feeling comfortable that's when I can really do ni nice brutal transitions <laughs> um where it seems very intentional but sometimes I met you know it's it's hard because it really is 
unplanned. So it could go wrong for sure. And it does a lot of times, but I think it's a lot more exciting to me than beat matching or yeah. And, and I, and I like dissonance and I like, um, and I don't see why there shouldn't be more experimental DJing. You know, we have experimentation in all fields and so DJing can easily be one. I think people are just very afraid of being seen as a bad DJ. <laughs> she likes apartments. My name is Ivan Cheng, and I'm on the microphone for a podcast produced for Ya 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 Nay 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 and Sonic Axe Academy 2020. Just after the new year, I had the pleasure of speaking with Sadaf Nava from my studio in Amsterdam. Sadaf is part of the lineup for Sonic Axe Academy 2020, which will occur in Amsterdam from February 21 till 23. This is her track, CFC, released on Haas Records in 2016. Sadaf was freshly returned to New York from Vancouver and I, headphones on and gripping a microphone in hand as the sun set, was staring at notes I had made and frantically pushing through words, struggling to find my cool or any composure. I realized now that I was asking questions about process when she aligns her relationship to process as largely improvisatory, moving towards a consistent idiosyncratic language across forms. Speaking to a stranger whose work I had perceived as so embodied, sensual and personal was alienating. In my mind were heroic, iconic 
photographs of the artist I was speaking to associated with her releases that, as we spoke, I became more certain were precisely aligned with the vision of this multidisciplinary artist. I ended our conversation stuttering out a question on transitions, having been entranced particularly by her command of structure on longer releases such as History of Heat from 2019 and Shell from 2018. She spoke at my wish about transitions and DJing, citing her most recent monthly mix for Rinse FM. In that mix, audiobooks readers of classical poems by Neruda, Sexton, Plath, Baudelaire, met club sounds and other surprising instrumentation. The emphasis is on the creation of mood or narrative. it's kind of it's 90% mixed by me it's not there's not that many hands on the last one actually that's why it took so long because there's so much it's so much easier to have outside opinion and (laughs) to have people be like oh maybe this should happen here or whatever but if you're making the decisions it's really like difficult to say when it's done or when you should stop or what's working or not but to me that album is kind of like a diary you don't have other people make entries in your diary usually so I kind of wanted to be very personal and I wanted to make the decisions that's I think that's why the next project is going to be totally different because I think there's going to be a lot of collaboration on the next one because I'm kind of more ready for that or I want that at this point um Mm -hmm. but the last one I I was very sort of protective with it sure I I mean maybe it's unfair to say trend but there's such a tradition of especially recently of having features collaborations of of it being passed around through many hands and it being like a product that's shared. And so I think I was just a little bit reactionary to that and just wanted to do everything to assert a sort of, I don't know, a different way of, of working. Sure. Is, is it a type of authenticity that you're interested in? Uh, I think so. Uh, something that's very, very personal that comes from one person, maybe an authorship or an authorship. Right. But y- yeah, yeah. I was reading, um, I, I was quite interested in this quote. Uh, you said, with me, things are not factual. It's more about the movements of the soul. The process of putting the album together spans several years and the songs are written in different moments in time and through different experiences. It's experience elevated to fiction, which is maybe the truest way to do a self-portrait. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, like, in terms of this thinking about your writing yourself and uh, and how you spoke about it as though it was a diary, 
I am interested in um, the choice to make this a very personal document public. Like what what choices what what's emit what's omitted, and um, what what's allowed to stay. Well, the only reason why it's allowed to be public because it's is because it's also a work of fiction. So, and I always um, situate my work as auto fiction, autobiographical fiction. So then you don't know what has happened or what is made up. And it's through this sort of fiction or ambiguity that I'm able to be honest in a way, I think. I think that if I were to share an actual diary of, you know, (laughs) facts or things that are, it wouldn't be very interesting. And also, I don't think I would be very honest because the way that we describe events is is never there's no objectivity to that i mean every our experiences are completely subjective so completely you know getting at like any semblance of truth would have to be in my opinion through narrative and through fiction mm-hmm. and through w- what we choose to highlight maybe says more about us than what actually happened sure. or what actually happens and then you saying that, like, I think immediately about uh, literary references and especially how um, autofiction or the genre of auto theory has become like a very uh, pervasive, pervasive genre of uh, cultural production mm-hmm. nowadays. And I'm wondering um, whether this type of literature, like contemporary literature, is very important or if you're really looking towards other things like your other media outlets or... Like what, what kind of media are you taking in in a linguistic way? Well, I really dislike contemporary fiction. I mean, contemporary... Okay, we have to situate that. Because sure. I mean, I don't really read things that are produced now. And I know that that's maybe not a good... I mean, uh, what is good or, good or bad? bad? Whatever. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> it doesn't... Let, let's say it doesn't really interest me. Just as most new films don't interest me. Just as... I I don't really go out of my way to try to understand our era or our generation or what pertains to to me right now as my peers because I feel there's like a huge bias. I mean, either they're my friends and I love their work because I love them Mm -hmm. and I can't distance those two things or... It's just I don't think we have enough distance right now to to know what to know what's going on. I would have to you know look at this twenty years from now and say, oh, I liked that. That is what is you know going to define this this generation, whatever. But um, but I do consume a lot of older contemporary, like seventies, sixties, fifties. I consider that contemporary. Okay. So in that sense, yes. <laughs> but it's not. It's also, you know, a completely different time. But um, in terms of writing process uh, and also the cover of History of Heat, which has all these papers on it mm-hmm. and, and everything kind of all those sort of references to writing, um, they come from... Uh, a Helen Sisu interview um, where she's describing her process of writing and saying that she writes like a painter. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And she describes kind of the, the, the literal setup, which is she set, she has a very, very large desk and on it, there's hundreds, thousands of pieces of paper, all in different sizes and textures and, you know, Mm -hmm. all sorts of different, and all sorts of different pens and pencils. And she, so she writes in this very material kind of way and, or get and kind of a, also a process of improvisation in a sense. And, sure. and she says she needs to block out like a week or so where she's uninterrupted and, sh- and she sort of just works that way. Um, and I relate that exactly to how I also produce music. Hmm. When I think of Ellen Sikzu, I'm, I'm very much like associating her with the person who introduced her to me and like pressed this in my hand and said, you really should read this. And, mm-hmm. and this is the association. So I guess, like for my experience, uh, p- people like Sitsu come with also a lot of biases and emotional memories about who they were recommended by and who they came by. And maybe that's because I didn't go through a certain educational institution and receive these things as a syllabus. But, but in a way, like I, I would say that uh, these uh, contemporaries that we're still considering contemporaries are still. Um, uh, imprinted or covered by biases and so i'm curious about like what that separation in thinking about people who are producing stuff now that you uh, choose not to comment on or not necessarily uh you you're not going to follow like how, how that line gets drawn of um i mean of where you it know, receives I make, its power from like uh where, where something make, becomes qualitatively uh-huh. of, of value Okay, I, I mean, I, I, ex- I exaggerate when I say that I, I don't consume anything of the now <laughs> because <laughs> what? Uh, yeah, sorry. You know, because of of course, uh, of course, there are people that I think are amazing and who are working now, and that's. But I'm saying as as a whole, it's hard for me to have a perspective because I can't see it from a distance. Sure. Whereas you know, um, a little bit before I, I can kind of look at it and, and see what speaks to me. And it, it, I wouldn't call it a bias more. I would say that, okay, I, I do this thing, um, in converse, I used to do this thing in conversations, which was really annoying where I would say, no, I cannot like this thing because it's not, it, it doesn't fit into kind of, um, an ideological worldview that I have or something, you know, and I would divide it between uh, David Lynch and Fassbender and I would oppose them and I would say there's one that looks from the outside and who has a distance with uh, his subject matter or what he's presenting, a kind of kind of um, a cartoonish or, or stylization that distances himself from his uh actors which would be david lynch in my opinion okay and fassbender who is his characters and who is in my opinion in the center of what he's talking about looking out Mm -hmm. so you know a difference of perspective and i would say the same about everything else that i'd like i feel that they fit into the same category in terms of how they see the world so it is ideological in in my opinion and and of course, 
that is also subjective <laughs> because for sure but to me i feel like you're either on this side or you're on that side <laughs> and this i'm kind of i'm kind of you know becoming a little bit less militant about that as i get older but it's you know i prefer the perspective from the inside mm-hmm. uh i pers- i prefer when the artist is on the same level as their characters or or that there's less of a bird's eye view on things hmm. it's a fe- it's a feeling and uh it's an aesthetic also i think that makes me intuitively go towards certain things and and i know right away i you know there's no ambiguity i either really like it or i can appreciate it i mean i don't hate david lynch i really appreciate it it's just not what inspires me or really moves me, you know, the same way that Fassbender does, for example. What's to what's the top of your Fassbender list? Like, what do you love the most? Can I ask that? Is that stupid? I'm curious. No, no, it's not. No, it's not stupid at all. Um, I like so many different ones for different reasons, but you know, I even really, really like the early ones. Love is colder than death, which is very stylized and which is kind of um trying to do a gangster film but mm-hmm. even in doing that it it feels so different uh, or it feels also so him which is really interesting um to try to do something very removed but for it to still be so such a sig- such a signature or have the same sort of feeling as his other films and then i like I really love Ellie. Fear eats the soul, oh my and God, you know, yeah. all all of them. I mean, there's not. I don't really like the sci-fi one, but that's pretty much it. World on a wire, um, but that's pretty much it. I really like almost all of it. How do you um, how do you get to watch them? Like, are there screenings that you go to? Are you watching this on your computer? Oh, I mean, like, uh, how does that alter things? Like, uh, uh, I know that there's this big uh, Berlin Alexanderplatz exhibition at like PS1, right? Oh, uh, yeah. Some years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's definitely things like that are nice to see on the big screen, but, it, you know, you do what you can. <laughs> I watched a lot of mm-hmm. films that I really loved when I was very young, actually, and I was just downloading them on my computer. I was getting them from the library. I'm talking about like when I was 14, 15 sure. is when I really got into that stuff so in vancouver yeah 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 cool um and was this something that you would socialize i guess i'm uh, the question i'm trying to ask is <laughs> along the lines of like how how you might or how you like to take in media whether it's like a socialized situation where you're doing it with friends or if you're really like alone in the bedroom headphones on <laughs> watching this film and like watching it again and watching it again and watching it again and then thinking about it and writing about it and letting that alter something and then never watching it again uh for the next year like, right um, how, you, how you take in this material um sometimes it's social but mostly it's alone mm-hmm. yeah um when i was younger i was it was kind of like a strange escape because no one was into that. No one was into that at all. Like I had no one to share that with. Not even online. No, I, I no, I. I guess I wasn't really doing. No, I wasn't in like chat rooms or, or anything. MySpace. <laughs> no. Um. I mean, I had like a few friends that would. 
be into that, but not really. It was a kind of a personal discovery. But then later in college, of course, there's, there's mm-hmm. all sorts of people that have those kind of interests. But but anyways, as an escape, I would watch like three movies per day or something like that, something crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was really like film history. <laughs> I was really going through the classics. I was really researching kind of what they would teach you in film school and I would watch it and I would really like right. it. And so do you uh, have aspirations to make film like in the classic genre of film itself? I know that you're producing uh, videos and like uh, artwork videos as well as music videos. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, What's your relationship to this visual moving image medium? I would, I, I mean, film is the thing that inspires me the most I think it's uh, the medium that it's the most multifaceted medium and also in terms of telling a story I, I love narrative in that sense even if it's non-narrative narrative you know like experimental narrative or I really would I would love to I would really like to make a film I just that requires a lot and I think I'm I'm moving towards it for sure it's definitely a medium that I would like to include in the things that I do, mm-hmm. but I take it very, but film is something that is very serious in a sense that it's a huge collaboration mm-hmm. and it's very difficult to organize uh, in this moment of time. Mm-hmm. Is it something that you'd think about contributing towards as, as a composer, like as the... I, I, it needs to, I mean... I would. It would be great to do that for friends, or if somebody asked me, "Would you do this soundtrack?" I would be, you know, interested. But the concept interests me a lot less because even because it's te- it's almost technical <laughs> in a sense, you know. And I would rather author something. I would rather work on a narrative that then would get then that would get supplemented by the music because you know. And honestly, I just, even if I made a, if I made a film, no, I shouldn't say if. When? When when I make a film, um, bad habit. (laughs) When I make a film, I'm not sure if I would include a soundtrack. That's the thing. Mm -hmm. I think I I would, I think I would be um, reluctant to include a soundtrack because I always find soundtracks to be a little bit manipulative. Um, or scores, you know? I'm thinking about Hollywood films with the, the orchestral. And I find it extremely manipulative because it tells you what to think when and it, it's an easy way to induce emotion. And I kind of really prefer the more dry films, filmmakers like Robert Bresson or something that really kind of uses the silence or the, it is focused on the dialogue or is kind of, um yeah a, a bit more a bit more dry or a bit more intentional mm. in its use of sound versus not sound versus silence versus dialogue things like that well this makes me even more curious about um <laughs> your recent film retirement behind the seam mm-hmm. which uh, like uh can you can you talk to me a bit about that it's interesting because that's to me a failed music video you know it's it was supposed to be a music video that then I looked at the footage of after and it's shot, you know, very lo-fi on, on a DV camera. And I later looked at the footage, which is a lot of footage. 
And I was like, okay, I'm not interested in making this a music video. So it actually became this long um, reality television, almost experimental reality television behind the scenes of making a music video. Um, wow. And I just decided to include sort of the whole thing without much editing because I found it more interesting. So so I understand that it's footage of you in different locations mm-hmm. in Manhattan yep. and it appears as a kind of self-portrait. Um, but like I was drawn to the 22-minute thing which seems almost like an episode, like a, exactly. a serial episode without the ads. And so having not seen it and like only speculating about it, uh, from what I've heard you say now about film and what you what I've read you, what 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 does a good music video do? Like, a, what what does a music video want to achieve for you? For me, oh, that's a really difficult question. Um, well, ideally, ideally, and and I'm not saying I've done this, but you know, it's something to aspire sure, towards. But it it's a uh, I would say it's, I would like it to be almost a short film. But is that something that you want people to receive over like a a 30 second Instagram trailer or like watching it on YouTube? Like uh, it doesn't. It doesn't matter where it is. I don't really care about that. It's more um, the, the yeah, no, I I don't care how it's presented at all. Usually. Mm. Cool. And I think that even, you know, yeah, I love short trailers. I mean, now sometimes that's enough. <laughs> sometimes 30 mm-hmm. second trailer is in, enough that you don't mm-hmm. even need to watch the thing. Um, sure. But yeah, I'm not sure. I, I did um, I did a collaborative project with a friend, which is a 13 minute short film. And it is based around History of Heat. And it's called Detectress. Um, or what one of the songs named after one of the mm-hmm. songs, and that we shot on eight millimeter and on sixteen millimeter film. Wow! So um, that's being edited. So that's maybe the first, you know, to answer. That's the maybe the first move towards kind of working with film. So maybe it's uh, it's good to talk a little about uh, you being in Amsterdam at the end of February. And yes. uh, and what you're going to do then, like what type of material you'll be playing, and um, and how you're thinking about that live set. Um, I don't want to say too much about the performance because you know it's it's better to just see it. Sure. <laughs> but uh, it's going to be along more along the lines of what I did at Issue Project Room in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's going to be an installation aspect to it and there's going to be a, a, a video aspect to it as well. I don't really prepare sets in the ter- traditional sense. Like I kind of have an outline of what's going to happen, but there will be definitely room for Im- improvisation in there for sure. Cool. Um, but yeah, no, I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. 